Dr. Jay Shankar, I want to start by asking you about how the Russia-Ukraine conflict seems to be posing the biggest challenge to India's presidency as the G20. How are you trying to overcome this global geopolitical conflict, which seems to be tearing apart any plan you may have to show the G20 and India's presidency as a massive success? How are you batting on this dangerous pitch? Uh, first of all, Rahul, let me say it's a great pleasure to be back. Uh, at Indo, first you've got to manage the curator, okay, to make sure that you don't have that much turn uh, in the pitch that early. Uh, I think we did a decent job in two meetings so far, the finance minister's meeting and the foreign minister's meeting. Uh, how do we manage... Uh, to me, it's not just a question of managing the big uh, geopolitical divide right now. It's a question of getting the G20 to go back to its original mandate. The G20 was invented to look at global development, to look at global growth, to address challenges to it. And what we saw last year was that uh, that entire agenda got sidetracked by the Ukraine conflict and the debates that accompanied it. It was a particular concern for us because the consequences of the Ukraine conflict have actually aggravated what is already a very distressed global situation. Uh, you had the COVID, you had even pre-COVID, uh, you had issues of uh, debt which were increasing. Uh, so uh, the the energy uh, the energy uh, spike, the food shortages, the fertilizer problems. These are actually big concerns of much of the world. But when you looked at the G20 for the last year, uh, these concerns were peripheral. Uh, that the, the un, you know, you could say understandably, the focus was entirely on, on the Ukraine conflict. So our first effort is really uh, to get the G20 refocused on what it should be, uh, its mandate, I think we succeeded in large measure uh, uh, in, in both the meetings which have issued uh, documents so far. Uh, we were able to get a very, very substantial agreement. For example, in the foreign minister's one, uh, there were 24 paragraphs, and many of these global concerns, health, debt, finance, uh, even terrorism, counter-narcotics, all these we had agreement on. What we did not have agreement was on the issue of whether the Bali consensus, uh, which was forged last November, in which we had a role as well, whether the Bali consensus could be rolled over for this year. Uh, and here uh, the Russians and the Chinese took a view that they would not uh, uh, agree to that. So what we did was we actually produced a hybrid document, you could say, which was a chairman's summary for those two paragraphs uh, and an outcome for the rest of the document. But your opponents in politics, and quite a few diplomats, have highlighted the absence of a joint communique, saying that oftentimes the success of a summit is determined by the outcome, which is laid out in the joint communique, given that you didn't have one in the finance minister's meeting and then in the foreign affairs meeting, your opponents will have their swords out saying Jai Shankar has failed, India has failed, that nothing really came out of this uh, G20 presidency except a chairman summary. 
how do you view uh, this chairman concern? summary and an outcome document that's how, what how, it's called how do you view this concern around the because the same challenge could potentially persist to september which is when g20 heads of state come to india for the leader summit look opponents uh, will have the swords out no matter what especially uh, in our current state of politics uh, but uh, if you look at it uh, in a more informed basis which opponents rarely do uh, do look at the indonesian presidency they actually went through a series of chairman summary till the very end where finally with our collective efforts uh, we were able to get uh, a bali declaration so if you're asking me how am i doing with respect to that i've actually got a chairman summary and an outcome document i've got out of you know a document of 24 paragraphs i've got agreement on 22 so uh, i i would say in the given circumstance uh, i'm frankly doing as well as anybody uh, can do now you have people you see unfortunately or you could say this is part of being in opposition you can take positions which have no sense of realism no sense of responsibility uh, as though uh, a very serious conflict requires a diplomatic event in delhi to be breached there's a much bigger problem going on in ukraine the problem's not going to be sorted out in a conference in delhi the problem's going to be sorted out uh, out there on you know uh, in in ukraine so i i think it's a non serious uh, proposition you're making what are you hoping for a minister would be india's legacy from this G20 presidency is a lot of commentary in the west about how in, how seriously india is taking this mm-hmm. G20 presidency uh what are you hoping will be the lasting imprint you know look uh you are pr- wanting me to predict not just a match but a whole series uh ahead of time that's right i honestly cannot uh, uh say where we would be in september obviously i would be optimistic i would try my best if i were to look at what is already visible you know we were the first country who actually consulted much of the world that is not on the table at the g20 about their expectations of the g20 nobody else has done this so what prime minister modi did through the voice of global summit uh, global south uh, summit we actually asked 125 countries saying look what is it you want you know what what is it you feel which is not getting through what should we be doing on your behalf nobody else has done that exercise so today actually much of the world uh, says you know we have india there batting for us that our concerns are going to be on the table our voice will be heard uh, and uh, i would say i would certainly hope one big legacy and i'm confident of that would be to make g20 much more true to its global mandate that g20 should not be uh, a debate you know uh, i would say a debating club or a arena only of the global north that the entirety of of global concerns need to be captured i think we have already made that point very very forcefully now what else comes out of it you know at the moment people are very very seriously discussing issues like green financing they're discussing how do we get the agenda 2030 back on track uh, they are they are looking at uh, issues which you know range from 
terrorism financing, counter-narcotics. So there's, there's a big agenda out there. There's been some commentary internationally about how India and Prime Minister Modi could have a role to play in trying to work out some kind of a rapprochement or a truce between Russia and Ukraine. In the real world, how feasible is this? Is this something that the Indian government is trying to work towards? Uh, you know, in the real world, you don't predict and you definitely do not predict publicly. Uh, so uh, so uh, I won't really give you a more specific response on that, but I do want you to note something. Uh, at this time, there are very, uh, very concrete, very, uh, I would say, specific issues which have arisen from the Ukraine conflict. Wherever there's a possibility for us to contribute, we have tried to do so. I'll give you two examples. When we were at Bali, the Turkish foreign minister actually brought up with me the problems they were having at that time with Russia on the Black Sea uh, Grain Corridor. Uh, and he felt that my speaking to Lavrov would be very helpful. Uh, and I did. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, okay, it may have made a 1%, 2%, 5% difference, I don't know. But in some way, we could help. When we were, when I was in uh, Ukraine at that time, the, uh, uh, when I was in New York, sorry, the Ukrainian prime minister actually met me and had some concerns about the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. And he wanted certain issues to be conveyed to the Russians. So I got uh, PMs okay uh, to do that and then went and, you know, did that with Lavrov. And then there were some consequent issues that we brought up with IAEA with uh, the Director General Grossi. So wherever we can help, we will. Now, whether the, the time is ripe for something bigger, you know, uh, is there actu actually the possibility, are the parties willing to look at returning to the negotiating table, because at the end of the day, that is what is essential. That, I think, is still a very open question. Now, this is a year where potentially President Xi Jinping could be coming to India twice over, once for the SCO summit in mid-June, then potentially in September. I want your thoughts, Foreign Minister, on India's most important relationship with the neighbor across the Himalayas. What's your reading of the current state of play with China given the continuing confrontation in the Depsang and Demchok sectors of the line of actual control? You know, uh, uh, this is a, a very, I would say, challenging and abnormal phase in our ties with China. Uh, why I say that uh, is because from 1988, when Rajiv Gandhi uh, went there, uh, till 2020, uh, the uh, understanding was that uh, peace and tranquility on the border would be maintained. We had two agreements not to bring large forces to the border. It was a very specific set of understandings. There were even uh, protocols on ha what happens when army patrols meet each other, etc. Now, in 2020, the Chinese violated that. Uh, and they violated that, and uh, the consequences of that we saw in Galwan and in other areas as well. Now, we have deployed our troops, we have stood our ground, uh, and the situation, to my mind, still remains very fragile uh, because there are places where our uh, deployments are very close up, uh, and, you know, in, in military uh, assessment, 
actually, therefore, uh, quite dangerous. Now, we have made substantial progress when it comes to disengagement in many areas. There are still some areas where we have ongoing uh, uh, discussions. So they will, you know, it's a painstaking job. We will do that. Now, uh, we have made it very clear to the Chinese that uh, we cannot have a breach, you know, we cannot have a breach of peace and tranquility. You can't violate agreements and then uh, want the rest of the relationship to continue as though nothing happened. That's, that's just not tenable. So my most recent uh, uh, encounter in this regard was with the new foreign minister, Chingang. In fact, when the foreign minister's G20 meeting took place. Uh, and uh, I, we had a long discussion about it. Uh, the, you know, uh, in September 2020, we, Wang Yi and I had an in-principle agreement how we're going to resolve it. So the Chinese have to deliver on what was agreed to. And they have struggled with that. Why? Well, that's a question you need to ask them. You know, I can't answer it. Because for me, it's very clear-cut. Until, until these problems are sorted out, we will not return to a normal relationship. I want to make that very, very clear. Your opponents say that you're not being totally honest about the extent of incursion, that areas where the Indian Army used to patrol previously have been denied, landmass in excess of 1,000 square kilometers being spoken of, they're saying this is a daylight robbery of our land. The PLA has intruded into our country. Dr. Jay Shankar is not so, telling the uh, people so these, the truth. These are the same opponents who said let's leave the border undeveloped so that the Chinese can't come. Or if they come in, they can't come in so, uh, so, so fast. These are the same opponents? Okay. Uh, now, let's, let's look at the reality. Uh, look, the reality is... Uh, wherever an attempt has been made to uh, change the status quo, the Indian Army has deployed and countered. Now, it is because of that that there has been stand face-offs and standoffs and on some occasions uh, uh, clashes and loss of lives. If we had done nothing, then Galwan wouldn't have happened. Then, you know, what you saw uh, in December at Yangtze in Arunachal wouldn't have happened. So the fact that, you know, uh, there have been uh, counter-deployments is not disputed by anybody unless you are an opponent, okay? So uh, in terms of what is it you are patrolling, yes, there are certain places where we have, uh, is something which Radhanaji, the defense minister, has uh, spoken about in parliament, that uh, you have... Uh, mutually agreed, mutually agreed uh, uh, areas of uh, temporary non-patrolling in order to facilitate disengagement. So if there are places I cannot patrol, there are places the Chinese also cannot patrol. Now, so this is something which has been worked out in certain areas where the, the deployments were very, very close up. But uh, do remember also, this is quite different from what used to happen before. Because if you looked at our history, you know, uh, people forget in Barahoti in the 1950s, in 1958, we unilaterally decided on a demilitarized zone. They didn't reciprocate. In the 1970s, there are areas we chose not to patrol, unilaterally. Even when Sumdurong Wangdung was resolved, we first came down. 
This government is very different. There's nothing unilateral. You know, if we have today uh, uh, taken on some, uh, some uh, I would say, commitment, that commitment is matched by an equal commitment based on the principle of equal and mutual security on the Chinese side. So, look, opponents will play this game because the very people who actually neglected the border, you know, you know the border, border uh, infrastructure budget till 2014 was roughly, was below 4,000 crores. Today it's almost 15,000 crores. You look at road building. You know, the pace of road building has doubled or tripled. Tunneling has tripled. So the people who are today making a noise are people, I mean, and, and you should look at the record. Speaking of opponents. No, no, hang on, hang on. Oh, yes. In 2013, I was ambassador in China, okay? You remember there was, I think I spoke to you at that time, uh, there was a Chinese incursion in Debsang. Do you remember what the foreign minister of the day said then? He said this is acne on the face of a beautiful relationship, and therefore we should not worry about it. So now you're telling me these people have suddenly discovered what's the importance of the border? I mean, come on. Speaking of opponents, Rahul Gandhi speaking in West London, the United Kingdom said that you're scared of China, that the foreign minister says China is much more powerful than us. How can I pick a fight with them? At the heart of his ideology is cowardice. And then he goes back to the times of the British to say that the RSS never fought. And this is really the mentality that's seeped down. How do you respond to Mr. Gandhi? Uh, okay. You know, um, I'm actually reminded because first we are talking about Rahul Gandhi speaking about China abroad. I'm reminded of a very different experience I had in 2011. This was the first time I met Narendra Modi. He was then the opposition chief minister of Gujarat, very much under attack uh, uh, at that time, a political attack in India. He comes to China. I'm the ambassador. And he asked me for a briefing on our problems with China. And we're having a problem, you know. We had the staple visa issue. We had the Northern Command issue. There, there were a whole set of issues. So I uh, told him that you're the first chief minister who's ever asked for a national security briefing. I'm curious to know why. To which he said, look, I'm an opposition chief minister. I have come to China. I do not want to say anything which is one millimeter other than my national position. And I have to be very careful. So I first need to fully understand from you. And two, at the meeting, if you see me deviating in any way, you, you know, signal me. I'm reminded of this because when I saw what happened in 2011 and I see what's happening today, I look at that contrast. Now your uh, question. Look, uh, I also, uh, like many others, uh, followed some of what Rahul Gandhi said when he was in UK. Obviously, look, a lot of it is politics. I'm putting that aside. Okay, there's a discount when it comes to politics. I am troubled as a citizen of India. 
I'm troubled as a citizen of India when I see somebody drooling over China and being dismissive about India. And I'll give you examples. He's, he puts his uh, description, Suomoto, of China in that Cambridge talk. You know, what's the word which comes to his mind when he talks of China? Harmony. His one-word description of China is harmony. His one-word description of India is discord. Okay. He talks admiringly of how China is greatest manufacturer, nobody can. And yes, China has done a tremendous job. I mean, nobody. But when it comes to manufacturing in India, he runs it down in every possible way. He says, make in India won't work. I mean, when you made Covaxin, the Congress party was saying Covaxin doesn't work. So, you know, it's one, look, you can have objective assessments about the progress of other countries. There's nothing wrong with that. But in this current situation, to talk up, you know, a competitive relationship and to worse do down your own country, you're telling me I'm scared. I'm asking you, you know, why is somebody undermining national morale like this? And it's not just you know, economy. Let's even look at security. Uh, he talks about connectivity. He speaks admiringly in the same talk. He's spoken about the Belt and Road. He compares, very poetically, I must say, he compares Belt and Road like the Yellow River in China gushing forth. Guys, the Belt and Road goes through POK. It violates our national integrity and sovereignty. He doesn't have a word to say about it. I, I think, you know, when, uh, to use Dr. Pillsbury's term, when panda huggers try to be China hawks, it doesn't fly. Interesting. Now that you've mentioned Michael Pillsbury, I want to refer to a few things from his book. If you, if you heard some parts of his session at the India Today conclave yesterday, he spoke of how he would have expected given what's happened in the warring states in the past, that there be a much stronger response uh, from countries like the Quad to develop a countervailing force to a rising superpower. That the Quad is still very loosely formed, doesn't have any definition in terms of a strategic military uh, alliance, even if it's not a formal alliance, but a more robust opposition to a rising superpower, that the world is allowing China to rise without coming together to stop it more purposefully. I watched that session. It was a very interesting session. Uh, but uh, pause for a moment on Quad. And I want to take you back to the previous question. Today, I hear from your words, opponents, how we should stand up to China. Do you remember that first time we tried the Quad was in 2007? And do you remember what happened to that quad? And how much we stood up to China at that point of time? So what's the difference? Today you have a quad because this government has the, frankly, the guts to stand up on quad. 2007, we didn't. We buckled. So coming to quad, the, uh, I would say, uh, you know, it, this is not about statements because, you know, does somebody explicitly mention a country or not? It's not 
you know, it shouldn't really be seen through the prism of treaties and alliances. To my mind, that's old thinking. This is a different world. And we are not a country, for reasons of our history, who do that, you know. Treaties and alliances is part very much of a post-Second World War, Cold War uh, kind of uh, framework. Today, I think the global situation calls for countries with converging interests who have a great deal of comfort with each other, uh, uh, working together in an area or a domain which they find themselves comfortable. In the case of Quad, that happens to be primarily the Indo-Pacific. And then developing, you know, what are called habits of cooperation. And I think if you see, from the time the Quad was revived, because 2007 the Quad was kind of aborted, it took a decade for it to be revived. Uh, 2017, uh, it started as at the Foreign Secretary's level. I happened to be Foreign Secretary at that time. 19, it became Foreign Minister's level. I happened to be Foreign Minister at that time too. And 21, it met at the Prime Minister President's level. Today, the fact that it meets, the agenda is growing. Each meeting is actually broadening the areas of cooperation. So I, I feel it is moving uh, well precisely because it is flexible, it is nimble, it is creative, it gets top-up attention. What I would not like to see is, I would not like to see it becoming bureaucratic, rigid, uh, you know, where it becomes legalistic. People spend more time quarreling about, you know, does this conform to that article or not. That's not the way we are thinking at all. I'm so, also very curious, and can I have a mic sent across to Dr. Pillsbury, please, about his theory that uh, China is winning the 100-year marathon and that it won't take till 2049 for President Xi to take China to being the preeminent superpower of the world, that he, Dr. Pillsbury thinks this could happen in the mid-2030s, and that this is the new reality of a China-led world order. As Foreign Minister of India, Dr. Jay Shankar, what do you think of this? You know, I, I heard him. Uh, I also had the pleasure of spending some time with him uh, this morning. You know, definitely, uh, definitely, uh, uh, you know, in the case of China, I mean, no question, China is today the number number two power uh, in terms of its size, in terms of its ability. Yes, there are sectoral areas where uh, it may be even better than that, and I think he gave some examples of it yesterday. I look, perhaps in a more detached, objective way, you know, he's an American looking at China. He's a China specialist looking at China. And, and you know, we've known each other for 40 years. Uh, I have great respect and regard for uh, his understanding and his experience with China. I am today an Indian looking at the world. I'm looking at both U.S. and China and a lot of other factors, uh, you know, uh, together. I don't think, uh, you know, it's a binary situation. Uh, I don't think the world anymore can be analyzed in terms of a binary competition. I accept that, you know, that these are, I mean, looking at them, that U.S. is still number one, and China today, you could say, in many ways, follows thereafter. Uh, but I think the situation is much more complex. There are many more variables. 
I I am as a student of history, I am much I'm quite reserved in my judgments about the future, where they go, how they happen. And I come back actually to the theme of your meeting today, the India moment. Because and and I would actually rather than moment say the moment is the you know, the batsman has just taken the crease or just a little while ago, I think there's a full innings to be played. That innings is called Amrit Kal. It's a 25-year innings which is to be played. I think we have today set ourselves up. We have set ourselves up not just by foreign policy moves because you have to do the deep domestic changes which are necessary for the rise of a power. China did that. You know, had our opponents done what they should have done during that tenure, we would be in a very different position. You know, we don't have the deep industrial strengths, the deep technology strengths of China, because that kind of thinking was never there. I mean, if you look from, you know, from the, leave alone the 1970s and 80s, which were a disaster economically. You look even after the 1990s, where was the focus on building deep strengths? You know, instead we went for globalization mantras. So my point is, the, my takeaway from what he said, and from his books and from our many conversations from him. We, countries have to build deep strengths if they have to have global aspirations. Today, make in India, Atmanirbhar Bharat, the kind of, you know, the kind of things we are doing, even improving human resources, skills, educations, you know, nutrition, all this is part of a matrix. Dr. Pillsbury, you spoke of uh, China's rise to the top of the world by the middle of the next decade. Dr. Jai Shankar, Prime Minister Modi, and the Indian government are working towards what they call Amrit Kal, the rise of India to the top. How do you square these two things off, given the fact that you're estimating China will rise, and many, like Morgan Stanley, are thinking that India is witnessing a once-in-a-generation uh, rise in global power? Dr. Pillsbury. You know, I would say that the world is watching the India moment. The Indian political leadership has within its hands the chance to be sure that the world is not ruled by a dominant number one China. In many ways, it's up to India to decide what to do. Um, and it's very scary, if I could use that word, to see Rahul Gandhi's comments about China. We have a few people in America who think the way Rahul Gandhi apparently thinks about China, that harmony is the key, the key feature of that country. Uh, almost all those people, the old panda huggers, they have changed their minds. They have come alive. They realize there's a global challenge from China. And if you carefully read Dr. Jai Shankar's book, The India Way, you will see in there his proposal that India should play a shaping role in the global order, partly as a voice for the global south, but for other reasons as well. The reaction in China to Dr. Shank Dr. Jai Shankar's book is very negative. They don't like the idea that India could play a role speaking for the global south. They believe that's China's responsibility. So this challenge between the, for the future of the India-China relationship, that's something I wish I had devoted more time to 
uh, many years ago. But I now see India as the world's chance to be sure that China does not become a dominant, aggressive, and dictatorial society. That's interesting. I also see we have a bit of a mutual admiration club here. Uh, Dr. Pillsbury, when he came yesterday, carried uh, Dr. Jay Shankar's book, uh, The India Way. And uh, I just heard from Dr. Jay Shankar before we started the session that in the last several years, he's probably gifted more copies of your book than anybody else. So you got a good uh, representative here because he wants people to read what you're writing. In fact, the very interesting thing, and I want to refer to some parts of uh, the India we, way. We do need, we need to give both the books to Rahul Gandhi. <laughs> <laughs> now, the very interesting thing about uh, the India way, and I refer to this just for those who haven't had the opportunity to read Dr. Jayashankar's book, is that you have a theorist, you have a strategic affairs expert who's also shaping India's foreign policy. And so much of what I grew up reading and so many other people would have read Western thought or Chinese thought, but you're not really linking back the strategic acumen from the Arthashastra, the Mahabharata, Rama, and bringing it to an Indian doctrine, an Indian strategic way of thinking, which is what Dr. Jayashankar tries to do. So, and it's also a great opportunity to engage and debate and challenge you uh, to some questions about balance of power. In the US, elsewhere, Russia, Beijing, the, uh, there's a lot of thought on balance of power. And national security doctrines are well documented, public documents which can be debated and discussed. In India, it stays largely within cupboards in South Block. It's not public. I want your assessment, Dr. Jay Shankar, about India's comprehensive national power at this moment and your projection of the climb. If you were to ra rank countries, where do you think India stands at this moment in terms of its comprehensive national power? Where do you see it by the end of this decade? You know, uh, first of all, I, I just want to pick up a little bit on, on what you were saying, which is to develop our own, draw on our own traditions you know, develop our own narratives, arguments, etc. Because when I, when you speak about comprehensive national power, I mean, in a sense, there are a certain set of metrics that we take, and uh, I, I mean, I, I think nobody would dispute the fact that there are many areas, many domains where we have fallen short. We could have done very much better over many years, and I see today, uh, you know, this country. This country, I say, I mean, not necessarily this government doesn't have to be a political party. This entire country actually today making that effort. You know, as someone who travels around, I, you know, for me, it's a very small change, but a very important change I see. When you go to many educational institutions today in India, I go as a minister, they would normally say, this is the gold medalist of our university. Today, they actually say, you know, these four people, they are patent holders from our institution. These five people, you know, they have inventions they would like to show you. So this country, this society is changing, the younger generation even more so. And we are getting very, very global, much faster than people think. So I am finding, you know, before I came in here, your social media person asked me, saying, you know, you are, you are very visible on the social media. It's not because... The foreign minister is doing something different alone. It's also because the society has changed and is relating and interacting with that in a very different way. 
your question where do we go look i am absolutely i i, I think stand at this moment let's start from there in your estimate we stand fairly high uh, because if you take the totality with a comprehensive uh, national power is a kind of a net uh, net assessment of of our capabilities but uh, there i i i would say that if we we do need today to develop the technologies to develop the industrial capabilities you know it angers me when i hear talk that you know we are a services economy because that's a cop out uh, so uh, when i see you know i something like say a 5g deployment of of indian technology when we see to speak about an india stack when we look at a invented in india vaccine you know to me these are the bell wethers of change this is what will actually grow our comprehensive national power when you know again in defense it's a it's a uh, domain you are very familiar with you know when we are stressing make in india and defense we are ourselves discovering there's so much more that we actually were capable of producing it's just that there was no policy there was no pressure on us to produce it was much easier to get it from outside so look this decade for sure i mean it's a general expectation in the world that we would end up as as the third third most powerful nation by the end of the decade that's the general global consensus but as i said i'm thinking an era i mean not i'm thinking an era i think uh, the country is thinking an era that we are looking at a 25 year time frame it's a first time in fact in this country that people are saying let's think 25 years ahead let us plan for 25 years ahead a lot of things we are doing today you will not see the results even in 5 years or maybe 10 years you will see it beyond that given the fact that russia and china are getting closer we saw china play a role recently in trying to broker an agreement between saudi arabia and iran is it inevitable you think that the world will be split into two camps india will have to choose most likely being with the united states or do you see india as a third pole in a country in a world dominated by the united states and china i think we will see not just third poles we will see multiple poles uh we will see multiple poles uh and when it comes to uh, india russia i put it to you that uh, it is actually a uniquely uh, stable relationship i mean if you if you were to say 1955 i take as the first inflection point uh from the you know time when russia committed soviet union then committed itself on a very core issue of india's national security you know russia has been through tremendous ups and downs over this period we have our our growth has been uh, more uh, organic and relatively uninterrupted but through all of this india russia relations have remained extraordinarily stable and i put it to you there is a deeper underlying convergence a geopolitical convergence no question as a result of the ukraine conflict russia will turn more towards asia okay i i have no problem with that but i would also suggest to you that when russia turns more towards asia one part of that a big part of that will actually be uh, uh, visible in india russia relations and that is already visible actually in trade that our trade 
uh, in fact, has, has probably more than tripled in the last year, and it's not just oil. There are a lot of other things as well. Will President Xi be coming to India? You know, look, I am the foreign minister. Uh, this is something you should ask his chief of protocol. What's your sense? You would know. No, no. I look, uh, I, I don't do programming. <laughs> or if I do programming, I do of my prime minister. I have a question. I'm not sure of what he's going to say, but it's really a question that needs to be asked. And this is really about whether you think um, that the SEO summit in media and the G20 summit provides an opportunity to push through disengagement along the line of actual control where we haven't been able to achieve disengagement. Thinking, uh, just zooming out and thinking for a moment, it's very difficult for President Xi to come to India at a time when you're so publicly and openly saying that there is a massive problem along the line of actual control, our relationship isn't normal. Do you think that creates an opportunity uh, to ensure that there is some kind of a true pullback? You know, uh, let's not mix apples and oranges here. Disengagement is primarily a military diplomatic uh, process. It has to be so because it involves actually sitting with maps, sitting, looking at the topography, uh, local military commanders discussing their dispositions and why that is so and what it would mean if I pull back so much and you pull back so much. It's a very, very granular set of conversations that need to be had. It's a conversation which only, you know, what has, what has been happening over the last two years is basically either at a, at a, for us a core commander level or uh, one below that. Uh, the military commanders with the diplomatic uh, representatives, uh, you know, in our case from the MEA, they sit and work work this out. Don't confuse this with with summits and uh, visits. That's that's a different issue. But there is a larger issue, and the larger issue is this: that if the current state of affairs continues, relationships between us will not be normal. That is a reality. You know, and I think Indian that reality is not lost on other people. Saying this as openly and clearly as you are is really interesting and refreshing to see. I want to draw your attention to the new American ambassador who's been announced and confirmed, Eric Garcetti. And I want to quote to you what he said about the Citizenship Amendment Act. He was asked during the Senate Foreign Affairs Relations Committee meeting about the CAA. Now, he's someone who's spoken up multiple times on human rights and discrimination. He thinks the Citizenship Amendment Act is a core piece of his engagement rather than an obligation. He also says he will work because he thinks that this is discriminatory towards Muslims. Now, you will have soon in New Delhi, from arguably our most important strategic partner, a new ambassador who thinks a key legislation, which is core of your ideological agenda, is discriminatory towards Muslims. You know, um, first of all, uh, when, when CA was passed, there was a debate. People in this country tried to make it an international debate. And it was, in, you know, it was interesting. When I went around the world and I explained to different countries that please look at your citizenship criteria and tell me, are you less specific in terms of how you have defined the criteria than we have? Take the United States. There are two very well-known amendments there, something called the Lautenberg Amendment and the Specter Amendment, which actually single out specific communities and specific faiths and give them a faster pathway 
into citizenship. Not just those. I can cite to you in U.S. There's a Jackson-Vanik Amendment. You know, uh, there was a there was one. Uh, if my memory serves me right, for the Hmong people. So, uh, and this is not just the U.S. Uh, but if you look at Europe, you know the Germans have a faster citizenship pathway for people of uh, German descent in other countries. There, there are other European countries who say, you speak my language, you have my faith, uh, you have cultural characteristics. But India doesn't have one uh, faith. No, sorry? India doesn't have one faith. Sure, sure. But therefore the question is about no, no, no. I, thinking look, of this being discriminatory towards Muslims. No, the, the point is that in many cases the people who are persecuted have nowhere else to go except to India. I mean, if you are a Hindu in Pakistan who's, who's being oppressed, where, where else will you go other than India? Okay. So, I mean, look, somewhere, I mean, you should not subject common sense to political correctness. I mean, there is a certain, uh, there's a certain reality here which all of us know. I mean, stares you in the face. But your question, what happens when he comes here? Let him come here. Pyar se samjha denge. Pyar se samjha denge. Nay American ambassador. Of course, we're out of time. Ordinarily, a few years ago, if I was doing this uh, session at the conclave, we would have spent a lot of time talking about Pakistan. We've come to the end of the session. We've not even mentioned the P word. Given what's happening in Pakistan at this moment, Foreign Minister, what's your reading of our relationship with our neighbor on the West? Uh, well, I think our relationship uh, has not fundamentally changed. Uh, today, our relationship is at a low ebb because uh, they ha they have not yet demonstrated a willingness uh, to give up on uh, cross-border terrorism as a primary uh, way of dealing with India. So I think as they move away from that, one has to look at the possibilities. You know, it's been very refreshing to have Foreign Minister Jay Shankar explain his point of view and India's point of view or the India way, uh, going back to Indian scriptures and Indian uh, streams of thought as opposed to referring just very casually and easily to Western thought or even Chinese thought. And this, I think, is something which really needs to be worked on. Can we have a very warm round of applause as we thank the Foreign Minister for joining us?